Good afternoon and uh, welcome to the, uh, good morning and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a senior policy fellow here at Cato and uh, editor of humanprogress.org. Um, in situations like these, it is common to start by introducing the subject of the forum, uh, but I will skip that part of the introduction in part because um, you all know uh, what the Cultural Revolution was. Indeed, some of you, like our second speaker today, have lived through it. So instead of talking about the Cultural Revolution, um, which uh, is, of course, the subject of a book, if I could have a copy of the book uh, up here, which I forgot, I would appreciate that. Um, um, instead of talking about it, let me first of all say how very pleased and honored we are to welcome to Cato once again Frank Decoder. Uh, Frank has uh, launched his two previous books uh, from the trilogy on China uh, here at Cato. The first book uh, was Mao's Great Famine and the second one was uh, The Tragedy of Liberation. Um, and uh, it is truly uh, a, a, a great pleasure to welcome him to Cato once again to uh, launch his third book um, on the uh, Cultural Revolution. So with that, let me introduce our speaker. Uh, Frank Decoder is a Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, before moving to Asia in 2006, he was Professor of uh, Modern History of China at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. He has published 10 books about the history of China, including Mao's Great Famine, uh, Famine as I, which uh, uh, won the BBC Samuel Johnson Prize for nonfiction in 2011 and was translated into 13 languages. Uh, the Tragedy of Liberation, a history of Chinese revolution between 1945 and 1957, uh, which I already mentioned, was shortlisted uh, for the Orwell Prize in 2014. Uh, today we are here to, um, to hear uh, Frank speak about his um, uh, latest book, The Cultural Revolution, A People's History Between 1962 and 1976. And as I said, it was the, uh, it's the last volume of, of, this, of his trilogy on uh, Mao era. Um, the book has just been published. Um, and uh, I believe that Cato Institute is the place where it is going to be the first place to be launched uh, here in the United States. And of course, it will be available for sale outside. Uh, with that, uh, help me welcome Frank Decoder. I'm uh, absolutely delighted to be here. Thank you very much to the Cato Institute and Marion in particular. Um, I normally speak with a clip-on microphone. I don't really like hiding behind a podium and speaking into a fixed microphone, but uh, that would make the cameraman very nervous uh, as I pace up and down the stage, so I will just stand here. And um, maybe I should also clarify uh, a detail about my appearance today here at the Cato. Um, my wife and I did arrive in Washington about a week ago. I didn't quite realize that the color purple would become so popular. So with all due respect to purple rain, let me also clarify that I'm much more with purple haze. I'll always be a, a fan. I'm, I'm on the side of purple haze. Now, 
Let me um, just clarify what I will talk about for roughly 35 minutes. It's important to clarify, very roughly, what the Cultural Revolution was all about. Um, a very confusing, contradictory interpretations there. So I'll give a very rough overview. And then I think it's very important to bear in mind that one of the reasons why there's so many confusing, if not conflicting, images about it is that it really does consist of three very distinct periods. In fact, four, 1962 to 1966, I refer to as the early years. It is actually quite impossible to understand what happened without realizing how important the so-called socialist education campaign launched by Mao in 1962 was, as I will explain in a moment. Otherwise, it just seems as if these Red Guards appear out of nowhere in the summer of 1966. Now, summer of 1966 to 68, I refer to as the Red Years. In a nutshell, Mao does something nobody else has ever done in a one-party state. He uses the people in order to attack the party. But this is followed by three years that could be best explained as a military dictatorship, 1968 to 71. I call these the black years, if only because it was such an awful garrison state during which the majority of unnatural deaths that can be counted for the Cultural Revolution happened. Far more people were killed by the military than by Red Guards in 66. Of course, the military itself becomes a victim of the Cultural Revolution, and 71 to 76, I call the gray years. Gray is good. Gray is good. After red and after black, gray really means that ordinary people in particular on the countryside, see how weakened the party has become and use that opportunity to reconnect with the past, as I will demonstrate they become the architects of economic reforms, not Deng Xiaoping later on. Let me start my account with a short anecdote. In August 1963, about three years before the official launch of the Cultural Revolution, Mao receives a group of guerrilla fighters from Africa. One of the visitors, a tall, broad-shouldered man from southern Rhodesia, has a question for the chairman. He says, chairman, there used to be a red star shining over the Kremlin. It has disappeared. The Soviet Union used to support revolutionaries. Now it is selling weapons to our oppressors. So my question is the following. Will the red star shining over Tiananmen Square in Beijing go out? Chairman Mao becomes pensive, puffs on a cigarette, and says, well, I understand your question. You are saying that the Soviet Union has gone revisionist and has betrayed the revolution. Can I guarantee that China will not go revisionist? Right now, I can't do that. We are, we are looking for ways to prevent this from happening. Three years later, on the 1st of June 1966, 
the People's Daily publishes an incendiary editorial entitled, Sweep Away All Monsters and Demons. It is the opening shot of the Cultural Revolution. As ordinary people are asked to stand up and ferret out representatives of the bourgeoisie who are trying to lead the country back onto the road of capitalism. And if this weren't enough, it soon comes to light that four leading officials have been placed under arrest, accused of plotting against the chairman. One of them is the mayor of Beijing. This man, it is alleged, under the very nose of the people, has tried to turn the capital into a citadel of revisionism. Now, how exactly these bourgeois representatives were able to worm their way into the ranks of the party is not entirely clear, and who they are is also obscure. But one thing is certain. Everybody knows who the number one representative of modern revisionism is. It is, of course, the Soviet leader and party secretary, Nikita Khrushchev in 1956, exactly 10 years before the start of the Cultural Revolution, in Moscow, Nikita Khrushchev gave a secret speech that shook the socialist world to its very foundations. Nikita Khrushchev denounced his erstwhile master, Stalin, detailing the horrors of his reign and attacking the cult of personality. Two years later, Nikita Khrushchev proposed the notion of peaceful coexistence with the West, which true committed revolutionaries around the world viewed as a betrayal of revolutionary principles, including that young guerrilla fighter from southern Rhodesia. Mao, of course, viewed Khrushchev's attack on Stalin as an attack on himself. He was, after all, Stalin's student. He must have wondered how could one man Nikita Khrushchev, engineer, a complete reversal of policy in the mighty Soviet Union, the first socialist state on planet Earth. The answer was that the bourgeoisie was gone, but bourgeois culture was still around. And it was that bourgeois culture that had contaminated a few people like Khrushchev allowing them, at the very top, to subvert and erode the entire system. Mao thought that a full revolution was needed against all traces of the past, a cultural revolution that would sweep away once and for all bourgeois ideology. It was, of course, a grandiose vision, but something else was happening too. Underneath all these ideological justifications, uh, Mao was also very much concerned with shoring up his own reputation. He viewed himself as a much greater revolutionary, even when Stalin was still alive. When Khrushchev took over the socialist camp, Mao viewed it as a snub. He thought that he was a much greater revolutionary than Khrushchev. Mao's first attempt to steal the Soviet Union's thunder came in 1958 with the Great Leap Forward. 
the chairman believed that the sheer wealth of China was in the hundreds of millions of ordinary people in the countryside. He herded them into collectives called people's communes, believing that if he could harness that vast potential and make turn people into foot soldiers in a giant army to be deployed in a continuous revolution working day and night. The economy of China could be catapulted past the country's competitors, including the Soviet Union. We know what happened. It was a disaster. The Great Leap Forward from 1958 to 62 led to the death of tens of millions of people. The Cultural Revolution was Mao's second attempt to become the pivot around which the socialist universe revolved. Lenin, in 1917, had carried out the great October Socialist Revolution. Mao would now carry out the great proletarian cultural revolution. He would be the one to defend and develop Marxism-Leninism, turning it into Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought. But even beyond Mao's concern with his own standing in history, there was also another plan at work. Khrushchev had denounced Stalin after Stalin's death. Mao was concerned about people who might denounce him even during his own life. He wanted to shore up not only his legacy, but make sure that he could eliminate his enemies. And there were plenty. In 1956, months after Khrushchev had denounced Stalin, some of his colleagues, Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi, used the secret speech pronounced by Khrushchev to write Mao Zedong thought out of the party constitution and criticize the cult of personality. Mao was seething. But in January 1962, the chairman's star was at its lowest, as 7,000 leading cadres from all over China assembled in Beijing to discuss the disaster of the Great Leap Forward. Many thought that Mao was responsible for the mass starvation of ordinary people. There were rumors going around about how the chairman was innumerate, dangerous, delusional. Some of them must have wanted him to step down. Who would be China's Khrushchev? This is where the early years start. Mao starts preparing the groundwork already in the summer of 1962, as he launches a so-called socialist education campaign during the last years of the famine, 1959, 60, 61, increasingly people turned to the market, opened up black markets, divided the land in order to survive as best as they could. A number of local counters went along. Now is the time, according to Mao, to eliminate all forms of capitalist behavior from the countryside. The socialist education campaign is there to heighten vigilance against class enemies and make sure that collectivization is maintained. Liu Shaoqi 
who earlier on in 1960 did support some measure of decollectivization, takes charge of the socialist education campaign in 1963 and veers even more to the left of the chairman himself, presiding over one of the most brutal purges in the history of one-party states, punishing some five million party members. Over 70,000 people are literally hounded to their deaths under Liu Shaoqi from 1963 to 66, accused of being capitalist rotors and counter-revolutionary elements. But repression is not enough. The army becomes the role model, distributing the little red book, establishing political departments and government units. Students are schooled in class hatred, some of them sent to military camps for army training. Children in primary schools are trained how to use air guns. So when, on the 1st of June 1966, that editorial I mentioned earlier on, Sweep Away, All Monsters and Demons, appears, students have been indoctrinated in class hatred for two, three, four years. They are itching to lash out and find those bourgeois elements. But something else happened that very same day, on the 1st of June, 66. A poster that had appeared a week earlier on the campus of Peking University is publicized. That poster alleges that the leaders of Peking University are nothing but a bunch of Khrushchev-type reactionaries. In June and July, students start ferreting out what they see as bourgeois elements. They attack some teachers. They highlight the bourgeois content of some of the textbooks. But if you go too far, they attack leading party members. Mao is away from the capital. Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi are in charge. They send in work teams. These work teams punish a number of students who they describe as anti-communist elements, reactionaries. Mao returns to the capital in July 1966. He turns against his two colleagues, Deng Xiaoping, Liu Shaoqi, pretends that they have been suppressing the students and establishing a dictatorship. To rebel is justified, is the battle cry. Before you know it, students start donning military uniforms. They call themselves Red Guards, they take the chairman's words as their battle cry to rebel is justified. They vow to defend the chairman and carry out the Cultural Revolution. They declare war on the old world. They burn books, rampage through cities, overturn street names, shop signs that smack of a feudal past, vandalize cathedrals, tear down temples, and also attack private property. In Shanghai alone, a quarter of a million households raided, searched by Red Guards who systematically confiscate or destroy anything that has a vague link with the past. They also attack people individually. By the end of September, 
In Beijing alone, over 1,700 people, some of them teachers, others ordinary people, have been literally beaten to death. Many others tortured for being reactionary. But there is an issue. Mao unleashed these students in order to get rid of what he believed were capitalist rotors in the higher echelons of the party. But leading party members had honed their survival skills during decades of political infighting. They were not about to be outflanked by a bunch of screaming, self-righteous young people, some as young as 14. They deflected the violence away from themselves by encouraging Red Guards to attack the homes of ordinary people. They sometimes established their own Red Guards. In the parlance of the time, this meant to raise the red flag in order to attack the red flag. Sometimes the Red Guards became divided over who the true capitalist rotors and the revisionist elements actually were. So in the autumn of 1966, Mao broadens the scope of the Cultural Revolution, encourages ordinary people to criticize party members. It is a social explosion on an unprecedented scale. There is no lack of people who want to vent their frustrations after years of communist rule. All those who suffered during the Great Leap Forward, workers who live in miserable conditions, victims of earlier campaigns, not least the five million people punished by Liu Shaoqi at the height of the socialist education campaign. But again, the ordinary people become divided. They're very different ideas about what the Cultural Revolution is. They jostle for power. In January 1967, Mao asks the army to step in and support what he refers to as the revolutionary left. Military officers support different factions, all of them convinced that they know what the true intentions of the chairman are. Before you know it, this country sinks into a civil war as people fight each other with guns, machine guns, anti-aircraft artillery. <coughs> this episode, the Red Years, that starts in 1966, comes to an end in 1968. 1968, the army steps in, establishes so-called revolutionary party committees, has soldiers overseeing schools, factories, government units. Millions are sent to the countryside as the military turned this country into a garrison state. All those who spoke out at the height of the Cultural Revolution are punished, students in particular sent to the countryside to be re-educated by the peasants. This is followed by a brutal purge. The talk is no longer about revisionist elements or capitalist orders, but about traitors, spies, renegades. Special committees are set up to examine the alleged enemy links of ordinary people and party members alike. In Shanghai alone, some 170,000 people are implicated in this witch hunt. More than 5,000 are hounded to their deaths. In the entire province of Guangdong, by one estimate, some 40,000 people are killed during this purge. But the heart of darkness is probably in Inner Mongolia. 
where some 800,000 people are imprisoned, interrogated, denounced in mass meetings. Torture chambers appear across Inner Mongolia. Tongs are ripped out. Teeth extracted with pliers, eyes gouged from their sockets, flesh burnt with hot irons. It looks very much like a genocide. The vast majority of victims, 75% of them, are Mongols. But Mongols only constitute about 10% of the entire population in Inner Mongolia. After this witch hunt comes a campaign against corruption aimed to cow the population, affecting roughly one in 50 people. Any utterance, any act is potentially counter-revolutionary, whether you poke a hole in a Mao Zedong poster or buy an egg from the black market. But this episode two comes to an end in 1971, of course, Mao afraid that the man in charge of the army, Lin Biao, could turn the army against him. Lin Biao disappears in a mysterious plane crash in September 1971. The army itself falls victim to the Cultural Revolution and is purged. Soldiers return to the barracks. This is the start of what I referred to earlier on as the gray years. By now, people are exhausted by this revolutionary frenzy. Most of all, they realize that the party has been badly damaged by the Cultural Revolution. In the countryside in particular, if the credibility of the party was damaged during the Great Leap Forward, its organization is undermined by the Cultural Revolution. Millions upon millions of people in what I refer to as a silent revolution start reconnecting with the past. They realize that there is an opportunity here, not so much to oppose the party, to reconnect with the past. They start operating underground factories on the sly. They start quietly distributing the land. They redistribute collective assets. They start traveling the country. Take, for instance, the example of Yen'an, a small place set among the dusty sandstone-colored hills of Shanxi, where Mao and Deng and Liu and Zhou had holed up during the Second World War and turned it into the capital, that, their capital. Yan'an is the capital 1942. But in 1974, a team of inspectors arrives and is shocked by what they discover. Virtually the entire region has gone capitalist. There's one village that does nothing but raise pigs. They sell the, the meat illegally on the black market and they buy corn illegally on the black market in order to fulfill their quota for grain deliveries to the state. 
And it isn't just a few villages in Yan'an. There are entire people's communes in that province where the land is quietly decollectivized, handed back to individual households, frequently with the help of local cadres. Now, this happens in poor provinces like Shanxi, if only to escape from the sheer misery and starvation caused by the planned economy. Local cadres frequently have no alternative but to let ordinary people use their ingenuity to sap the planned economy, replace it with their own initiative. But in slightly wealthier regions in the south, the same happens too. In Guangdong, one single county called Puning, already by 1972, you see markets appear that, in fact, resemble very much the image we have of the 1980s. Everything is traded. All the forbidden items in the planned economy can be bought. Ration coupons, meat, grain, cotton, all the commodities normally reserved for the state. Tractors can be bought on this black market. There are blind people who will sing traditional folk songs for a few arms, storytellers, books that can be bought, traditional poetry, collections of histories of the imperial period. There's a whole attempt to reconnect with the past. And not just in Guangdong. There are traders on these markets that travel the entire length and breadth of the country to fulfill market demand. And not just that. In the countryside, people start operating underground factories in the name of the collective. There are counties outside Shanghai where by 1975, roughly three quarters of all the output comes from underground factories rather than from agriculture. It is truly a revolution from below. When Deng Xiaoping, a few years after the death of the chairman in 1976, assumes power, he tries to return to the planned economy. In April 1979, he demands that Ordinary villagers who have left the people's communes return to these collectives. But already by 1972, there are parts in Zhejiang where up to two-thirds of the farmers have left the people's communes. They're referred to as go-it-aloners. It's too late and it's too little. By 1980, in some provinces like Gansu or Anhui, up to half of all the land has already been decollectivized as a result of decisions of millions and millions of very ordinary people. Deng is pragmatic. He realizes that he cannot force people back into these communes. By 1982, the people's communes collapse. It is the people who are the true architects of economic reform, not Deng Xiaoping. Something else happens. Throughout the Cultural Revolution, people never really offered much more than outward compliance, keeping their inner thoughts to themselves. One result of the Cultural Revolution is that 
endless campaigns of thought reform have produced nothing but skepticism even among party members themselves. In short, ordinary people have freed themselves from the shackles of Mao Zedong thought of party ideology. They no longer believe it. But unfortunately, their political aspirations from 1979 onwards will be constantly suppressed. The party, as a result of the Cultural Revolution, lives in constant fear of its own people, having to repress their aspirations again and again and again. In 1989, Deng Xiaoping orders a clampdown on pro-democracy demonstrators in Beijing, sending in the tanks to Tiananmen Square. The massacre that follows is a display of brutal power and steely resolve. It sends a message that pulsates to this very day. That message is, never query the monopoly of the one-party state. Thank you. Do you remember the name of the Southern Rhodesian uh, politician who, who went to see Mao? I, I, just, I just wonder who it was. I'm, I'm assuming it was a senior official from ZANU-PF, which continues to run Zimbabwe to this day. Yes, this, this, this young guerrilla fighter, um, I don't think he has a name in the account. It's, um, it's, it's, but he was yeah. a very young man. The reason why I ask is because completely by chance at 4 p.m. today, we have Senator David Coulthard, uh, who is the former education minister of Zimbabwe, um, give a book forum on the 50 years of tyranny in southern Rhodesia slash Zimbabwe today. So Your link. we are thinking about linking things together as we go along. Our second speaker today is uh, a uh, uh, colleague of mine. Yiling Sha is a visiting fellow at, uh, uh, here at Cato. And he, of course, as I already indicated, experienced the Cultural Revolution in his uh, childhood and in his youth. And... Uh, maintains um, deep memories of those tragedies um, of those days. Um, he focuses on institutional change um, in China and how to make China more open, modern, and free society. His research interests include um, economic history, institutional economics, uh, and public policy. Shai used to be a professor of economics at Peking University, where he taught since 2000. He was dismissed from the university in October 2013 for his sharp criticism of the Communist Party and bold advocacy of constitutional democracy, rule of law, and human rights. He was a visiting scholar at uh, Stanford University, professor at UCLA, and also at UC Berkeley. He was one of the original signatories of the Charter 08, a 2008 manifest manifesto calling for individual freedom, constitutional democracy, and rule of law. He was also the founder of the Cathay Institute of Public Affairs, a free market, uh, a market liberal think tank in China. He's earned his uh, MA and PhD in economics from Fudan University in Shanghai, 
Uh, please help me welcome my colleague, uh, Yeling Sha. Thank you, Marion. <clears throat> it is great honor to comment on uh, Frank Decurter's uh, great book. Uh, <clears throat> I read a few of his books about China. I know this about, now it's a tense, right? Uh, admire his achievements and uh, great efforts on <clears throat> research of the China's history, uh, which, you know, in China nowadays, so far, 50 years has passed so far. There's no serious, independent, uh, thorough research on Cultural Revolution was allowed published officially in mainland China. It's a great pity. I would say that's a very rare occasion or tragedy in human beings' history. Uh, perhaps uh, some of the, I think the people in Western world might not know that clear. Among four demons in 20th century, Mao is number one. As for killing 80 million people, use uh, different kinds of the names and measures. The most distinguished one is called uh, class struggle. Actually, I call it as a disaster, tragedy, Holocaust, and decivilization. So I think in the whole world, people might underestimate the disaster or sufferings that Chinese people experience. Uh, Frank divided his book, this, uh, this book, into four parts in general. Uh, I found it interesting to use uh, different colors. But the first part is not. It refers as uh, the early days, which I, I suggest it might well be called as uh, uh, the brewing, brewing and the fermenting days. It might be more accurate on that. Uh, it doesn't mean that I, <laughs> I would teach uh, Frank to write, but uh, from the sense of the, uh, the people who experienced that period. I think that in China, we use different colors. When you mentioned the uh, black days, in China, people might call it uh, white, the days of white terror. That's a odd, I mean, a dramatic expression. So you could see that uh, for the fourth part, I would say, uh, you say great, the great days, or great days. I would say that's the days to restore the orders. Or people have their uh, kind of suspicion of most authority and his correctness. Why I said that that way? After Ling Biao's uh, escape, that's called uh, September 13th, uh, whether you call it an event or incident. And many people, even high-ranking officials in, in China, they have suspicion on Mao's correctness. And only people, they just discuss among themselves secretly about Mao's correctness. They have the suspicion for the first time. So I, I think the Mao's health was directly influenced by that suspicion. 
just after Lin's escape. So you could see for several months, Mao did not show up. And after a few months, you saw him seem to be aging quickly. And Mao, during Cultural Revolution, he called on people to rebel. That's ridiculous because that regime was established by himself. He called people to rebel, to against the power, authority. And he said the rebel is justified. And he called on bombarding the headquarters. So that means he's not satisfied with his own regime. He tried to remove all the barriers or anyone who dare challenge his personal authority. But he would not care the huge cost that may cause. He don't care. He doesn't care about the disorder. He doesn't care about the, the fortune loss or the life loss of China. Frank is so ambitious as to define the book as the people's history. Uh, I would say, I think it's, it might be a good point because it could be uh, refers to as to uh, observed or written or described from the individual's perspectives. Uh, if you read the book, you find some of the cases, personal experience, some of the famous writers or intellectuals some are just ordinary villagers or workers. I think that uh, adds some, <coughs> adds some convince to the point. There's a lot of uh, interesting paragraphs I want to mention. One is on page 299. It mentioned ignorance of basic physiological facts, a young girl called Zhuo Fei was terrified that she might be become pregnant after sharing a bicycle with a young man. So in, during Cultural Revolution, the propaganda educated people with all political ideas, which is communist ideas. And they think that if you are talking about money, talking about daily life, that's shameful. That means you are not a revolutionary. So Mao intends to change the way of people thinking. That's terrified. So as a person experienced that period, I remember that when we were only seven years old, all people were demanded to recite so-called the old essays the old three essays that's written by Chairman Mao. So anyone, you have to recite these paragraphs fluently. Otherwise, you'll be either punished or blamed. It's not joking. It's serious. And I still remember my mom, when he go to the, the, the company, the, the factory she works, she was stopped often at the gate because she could not recite the Chairman Mao's slogans. At that time, my mom was so busy with three children, and she just could not recite that properly. And then the guards told my mom, just return. 
And as far as you can recite, you can enter. So meantime, at the meantime, if you, uh, you can't go to work for three days, that means your salary, your <laughs> very, you know, the meager salary will be deducted. Just give us a few examples of people in their daily life. <clears throat> and also I noticed that uh, Frank mentioned the second economy, which I would refer to as underground economy. Even at that period, a lot of farmers, especially in southern part of China, they secretly produce some food, grains. Otherwise, there would be no food because uh, the leaders always demand them to read Chairman Mao's slogans and books instead of the production. That's stupid. As farmers, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't help that we, you know, it can't produce itself by reading Chairman Mao's books. So I think the, the farmers in southern part understand it better than in the northern part. I don't know why. Maybe it's a long history of their prosperous uh, production in southern part of China. So in Jiangsu, Zhejiang, and Anhui, part of their, uh, the areas, they have the two, they have a double phases. On one side, whenever the leaders came, they organized people all reading books, uh, little red books. Uh, when they left, then they all turned to the production immediately. So that's, that is the force, the performance, right? <clears throat> and one other thing I would like to mention is, uh, also I think that Frank mentioned in the book, is a lot of people at that time tried to listen to foreign radios. At that time it was called the enemy's radio. That means anyone were catched, that'd be very dangerous for them. Not only one person, maybe the whole family members would suffer from that deed. But one time, when I was 10 years old, I, I pushed the, the door that my dad did not close. And I found my dad was listening to the Voice of America. And my father was terrified and told him not to say anything about that. I said, OK. And he left and tried to adjust it, the original position for Voice of America. And later on, I keep listening to that, and also the radio Moscow. So I think that from that time, I know something different than the other people. Of course, I'm not the only person. There's a lot of people uh, that try to listen to those different voices, especially after Lin Biao's escape in 1971. And Frank mentioned the second society. That means the people, they have their own judge, judgment and principles, even in that specific period. <clears throat> and that's why when Deng Xiaoping uh, tried to change the situation, so-called opening to the outside world and have the reform, economic reform, that's Almost immediately, billions of people of Chinese supported his uh, decision. It doesn't mean he is the only person who knows the truth. I think the most people understand, but they dare not speak it out. 
And then, by far a wise person to understand the political change is a necessity. Why I said that way? Because then, wants to return to the former 17 years of so-called correct path of CCP. He thinks from 1949 to 1966, in general, is correct path. So after that, the Cultural Revolution is a wrong path. As far as he returns to that old path, that'd be all right. Of course, later on, he tried to open a little bit when he visited some Western countries, especially to Japan, the other country, US. But he never thought about the real democracy. My friend Wei Jingshen wrote uh, a poster in Xidan Democracy War in 1979. He called on the fifth modernization, democracy. And he also later on wrote about, if we can't have the democracy, that means then might be the next dictator. So he's so bold to speak it out, even at I mean, in the high point of Deng's political life. But now the history proves that he's right. I mean, in China, actually, a cultural revolution has never been ended. Xi Jinping still follows the way of thinking and the, it, the logic of the Mao's class struggle of course, he, he will not use that term, but he still treats dissidents or any, any people there suspect CCP's doctrines. So after three years, his leadership, you could see so many human rights lawyers and activists were arrested. So many scholars were suppressed in China. So, I wish more and more people pay attention to the current Hitler, the current dictatorship in China, not just forerunner by the, the superficial prosperity of China's economic groups. <clears throat> That's one paragraph I want to read, just a very three, three lines in the book. People fought deception with deception, lies with lies, and empty rhetoric with empty slogans. Many were great actors, pretending to conform, knowing precisely what to say when required. I think this kind of description is not correct in cultural revolution, but also it is the same thing in current China. So whenever you saw a new leader got power, everybody seems to be supporting him, absolutely. But in his mind, he might suspect what is correct, what is wrong. And as far as some benefits, he might exchange. He might exchange his principles with the benefits. So that's why billions of Chinese are still supporting CCP and dictatorship and they try to get some benefits from those systems. So I feel very disappointed in some way, but I'm also optimistic. <clears throat>
I think as far as the truth could be exposed to people in China, as far as there's no firewall in China, I think the people would understand better. And they certainly, definitely would make efforts to go towards democracy. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before um, handing it over to Q&A, which is to say asking you questions, let me ask uh, a first question. Um, in many revolutions, uh, certainly of the 20th century, we have seen an outsized role played by young people, whether it be Nazi Germany and uh, overwhelming support that uh, Hitler enjoyed at, uh, in German universities, Pol Pot, um, or Lord's Liberation Army, or even uh, in Libya, young people have um, seemed to be amongst the cruelest proponents of a variety of liberation ideologies. Um, I'm not going to make the obvious uh, link between that and uh, campuses uh, in the United States these days, but I would like to ask, is propaganda and brainwashing necessary to radicalize young people, or are young people, in your view, somehow um, innately open to uh, revolutionary ideas and cruel way of implementing those ideas in practice? Well, thank you very much uh, for all the uh, insightful and, and, and also very kind comments. Uh, by Professor Xia, and um, he, he did point out by reading one short abstract that there is, of course, an innate actor in every person in the People's Republic, and one could go further than any person who has to live for a while under a dictatorship. Uh, in fact, I pointed this out in my book on the 1950s, already in the 1950s, if you have to go from 1949 onwards uh, through one thought reform campaign after the other, if you have to be in class as an adult week in, week out, after a while you do get the hang of it. You know, If you get slapped on the wrist for not saying the correct thing, you, you do get the idea of saying what is expected from you. Now, that point I'm trying to make Namely, that we should see diversity where frequently what is offered to us is nothing but conformity. Um, this point is equally true for young people. Um, now, there are two points to be made. First of all, um, education is absolutely vital. I think that's what you really wish to hear. Um, but we must bear in mind that the students who rebel over the summer and the ones who become Red Guards are a tiny, tiny fraction of the overall population of, of young people. And in fact, in the month of August, the only students who are allowed to become a Red Guard are students who are literally born red. In other words, students whose parents are high ranking party members. They themselves set up teams to make sure that they are not contaminated by students 
who are somehow either gray, not to mention black. Black being the color given to students who come from a so-called bad class background, whose parents might have been shopkeepers or teachers or small property owners. So there's a tiny fraction of students who are allowed to become red guards, and they are inured to violence because they've heard so much of it from their own parents. Of course, none of the methods of torture used by red guards are actually novel. All of this comes from a culture of violence established by the Communist Party since 1949, if not much earlier. So this is a crucial point to bear in mind. Now, the second example I wish to give is the image we sometimes have, the, I guess the quintessential image of the Cultural Revolution, red guards standing on Tiananmen, applauding the chairman, shouting slogans, raising the little red book. It is an image of extraordinary conformity and of great power, too, all these young people forming one body. And, of course, it is filmed and shown on documentaries again and again and again and again. But once you start looking at it more closely, you realize that they, too, are great actors. They, too, know what to say. They, too, know how to behave. There is one young woman in that, young, student of German, writes to the chairman to say that what she saw on Tiananmen Square reminds her of the Nazi rallies in Nuremberg. Oh, she ends up in prison, needless to say. There's another young man who comes all the way from Fujian province, and he's already so cynical that he thinks that that rather fat man who looks rather disdainful standing on the back of a jeep is not really Chairman Mao. It's probably a fake. Who knows what is right? Who knows what is wrong? The whole thing is nothing but a gigantic show. And then there is a third testimony a young man classified as belonging to a bad class background who nonetheless managed, manages to forge his papers to pretend that he comes from a red class background, travels all the way up to Beijing, ends up on Tiananmen Square, and feels nothing at all, thinks that he's surrounded by other young people who have somehow lost their minds. And God knows how many other students think exactly the same thing. And there is somebody else, also from Shanghai, as a young man who has never been able to go to school because he belongs to a family of so-called landlords. Although, of course, by 1968, there are no landlords. They've been killed in 1949. If not killed, expropriated. Nonetheless, this child is not able to go to school. He is housed at home, his parents teach him. His older brother teaches him for years the values of democracy and human rights. When he is on Tiananmen Square pretending to go along, he feels nothing but dread. He sees Chairman Mao 30 meters away. He feels fear and dread. So it's very difficult to get through that image of conformity. And I would say that, yes, Obviously, there's something about young people. We've all been young. They are more impressionable than others. Um, but let us never forget that the very red guards on Tiananmen Square have been carefully selected. And even then, there are those who somehow don't go along with the flow. All right. 
So with that, let me open it to Q&A. Uh, please uh, wait until the mic gets to you. I will call upon you. Then uh, please, uh, would you tell us who you are and uh, kindly form your question in a form, in, in a question form, which is to say, please don't make statements, just ask questions so that we have, so that we can get through more of those. Lady on my right. My name's Mei Fong. Um, I'm at the New America Foundation. Um, I had a curious question about, given the um, all the evidence that appears to be mounting by historians such as Frank on the Cultural Revolution and some of these uh, great problems that have been wrought, um, at the same time, um, in China, there appears to be, you know, there's such a huge um, tide of censorship and, and a revisionation of, of how things should be. Of these two forces right now, um, wh where do you see the knowledge in China so far as the Cultural Revolution is concerned? Do you see it's tipping towards your way? Or do you see, uh, you know, despite all the information and the Great Firewall, that the forces are going the other way? Um, that's a very good question. Um, the People's Republic is, of course, a state of enforced amnesia. There have been campaigns again and again and again to, to either misrepresent the past or simply ignore it. And this seems to be the dominant trend, pretend that nothing ever happened. China seems to start not somewhere 2,000 years ago, not even with the fall of the empire in 1911, or when the red flag goes up in 1949, but in 1979, when Deng Xiaoping comes to power, there's nothing before that. So something very odd happens. The Communist Party first destroys tens of millions of people, throws many hundreds of millions of others into a, a black hole, and then applauds itself for lifting them from poverty since 1979, when in fact these ordinary people have only been given a little bit of space to clamber out of that black hole. But the point you are making um, is about history today. Now, I would say that um, there have always been periods of relative, I wouldn't call it openness, but relative tolerance and periods uh, of clamp down. And since 2012, with the latest uh, administration, we are in a period of clamp down. When the man in charge, Xi Dada, <laughs> announces that any attempt to query or undermine the history of the Communist Party of China and its leaders is equal, tends amount to historical nihilism, it does send a rather chilling message. So until about three years ago, um, you would regularly see local historians working in local archives. You would see them come to Hong Kong to present their papers, to publish their work. I have to say, today it's very different. To start with, if they still have the courage to publish in Hong Kong, well, the publishers are gone. They get kidnapped once in a while, and then they appear on TV across the border where they somehow confess. <laughs> sends a rather chilling message. You used to be able to find stacks of books critical of the PRC at the airport in Hong Kong. Those books are gone. The historians are not gone. They've just gone very quiet, very, very quiet. 
it is not a good career move to pursue the history of the Communist Party of China in the People's Republic, I'm afraid. But that doesn't mean that people don't read and don't talk and don't reminisce and don't continue to think critically. Um, but there is a chill. All right, uh, let's take one from here and then we'll move to the middle. Francis O'Neill, novelist of Virginia and New York. Um, would there be any reason for thinking that the culture of violence you mentioned imported from Japan, um, they are admittedly very violent handling of China before the war? I'm not sure if the mic was on, but the question is whether the, the, the culture of violence was imported from uh, Japan and the Japanese handling of the Chinese during the Second World War. Well, it's a good question, but of course, violence doesn't really get imported from anywhere. Human beings uh, are quite capable of being violent. Um, it is true, I think, it's a very good point to make that during the Second World War, human beings behaved atrociously towards each other, whether it was in, in, in Europe uh, or, or in Asia. Uh, it goes without saying. Uh, and some of the, uh, some of the, some, some parts of the country were uh, bloodied by the Japanese occupation. That's very true. But ultimately, if violence can appear anywhere, the term culture of violence, I think, is something else. And that is quite specific to the Communist Party of China. And it starts very much from the beginning with land reform, or what is referred to as land reform, in which quite literally the chairman wishes to pit people against each other just before the years leading up to 1949, and also in the South after 1949, when quite literally villages are compelled to denounce a small number of targets identified as traitors or landlords and must eliminate them. Why? Because the Communist Party wishes to make sure that everybody has blood on their hands, that everybody is implicated in the murder of a small number of people so that there cannot be a return to the past. That is the revolution. Violence is the revolution. So that is quite different. Now, that culture, from land reform all the way to the Cultural Revolution, should not be separated. It's a continuum. If I'm obliged to kill you in 1949, by 1966, I will be afraid that your son will come and seek revenge. I will use the Cultural Revolution. My son will use the Cultural Revolution to kill your son. <laughs> it's a sort of uh, transmission of revenge, of grievances, of violence. It's a cycle of violence that starts very much in 49, which is not to say that there was no violence either during the Second World War or well before, well before, needless to say. Uh, excuse me, I'll add something. I think it's quite different with uh, Japanese uh, <clears throat> killing people in China. Uh, you know, there, there's a national hatred for uh, Japanese invaders. But uh, I think the hatred among the Chinese themselves are 
uh, a kind of the, the hatred for human beings. It's not only body torture, but also spiritual, po- po- spiritual fo- uh, torture and also the persecution of all kinds, all means. And that's a long time persecution ever since Communist Party got power. So that's uh, movement after movement, all kinds of political persecution. So that suffering can, cannot be understood, uh, I mean, fully by the Western audience. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, a member of Reagan Foundation. Uh, you mentioned 80 million. Uh, what I have heard through the uh, victims of communism, they are saying anywhere from 55 to 70 millions uh, murdered by Chairman Mao. Uh, that's, that's number one. Number two, um, what kind and how much of an impact uh, President Nixon's visit to China has made? Thank you. Thank you. The first question, I think, the different calculation and data, but in general, people all agree on. I mean, the majority would agree on more than eighty million. Yeah, that's I mean the during most time. Uh, and the first second question is uh, when Nixon visit China, it seems to be a solution to uh, break the, the Cold War so-called ice. Um, and Mao used that strategic uh, plan to try to check uh, Soviet Union. And also it kind of their persuasion on the high-ranking officials of China that uh, China might change his political attitudes and perspective on the, the world. They called the three-world theory. And I think after that, John uh, Lai got more saying on the foreign affairs but it's not last long. Then Gang of Four tried to invade, uh, interfere, and later on, I think, the, but only by the, the opening up to the outside world by 1979, when Deng gave the visit to U.S., and that's a new error for the relationship between U.S. and China. Thank you. Let's chat one up over here. My name is Yong Yoon. Uh, I'm an economist professor at uh, George Mason University. <clears throat> uh, unlike the story of Mr. Dictator's three books, it looks like uh, Chinese people enjoy some economic freedom. But how stable is their economic freedom, such as starting a private uh, business? Does it depend on the policy and the mercy of uh, the Communist Party? or? Is there any legacy or, or any basis that the Communist Party cannot easily you know, eliminate? Um, well, you asked me the question, but to some extent, uh, I think Professor Xia would be better a place to answer it in the sense that I, I don't really study the economy in the People's Republic today. But I think it's important to remember, to remember that um, the efforts by ordinary people to somehow surreptitiously, on the sly, 
get back some control over their own lives uh, by opening black markets, by trading outside of the planned economy, uh, was there from the very beginning, from the very moment after 1949, when uh, over a number of years the Communist Party imposes that state-controlled economy. So it, it doesn't appear from 1971 onwards. It's always been there. Many people managed to survive uh, the famine from 58 to 62 uh, thanks to their ingenuity and thanks to their willingness to break the rules of the collectivized economy. Um, now, since 1979, as I mentioned, um, people have gained enormous economic freedoms uh, by undermining this system from 1971 onwards. How solid is it? That's very difficult to say. It seems to me, but I may be wrong, um, Professor Shaq can correct me, it seems to me that the land still does not belong to the villagers. They have the right to till the land, but it doesn't belong to them. Uh, I think it's clear that in a one-party state, um, those in charge can always start restraining basic economic freedoms. Um, clearly, it is not a capitalist economy in the sense that there is no free movement of capital. And quite clearly, it is a one-party state that thrives on misusing the savings of ordinary people who work very hard. Um, so there are all sorts of very complex inbuilt constraints, even on basic economic freedoms to this very day. Okay, the, during the Mao's era, uh, the farmers normally they have their, their own very small piece of the uh, private plot. Mm. They were uh, farm on that small part, a piece of land. Uh, it could be sufficient for the grain ratio for their family members and maybe some extra money to uh, uh, go through with uh, vegetables selling or some other fruits or something. But it's very limited, and also it should be very secret production. You can only use your spare time, so-called spare time. That means you have to work on the, the, the communes, the land, till the morning to night. Uh, then after maybe at midnight, you have the two hours to work on your own land. And it's very, uh, I think, there should be very shabby production. But after uh, 1972, there's a turning point uh, because after Ling Biao's event. And a lot of control has been loosened. And then people might, uh, people know each other, and they don't tell. Otherwise, I mean, the, for previous years, they could report immediately to the, the local uh, authorities. So they don't tell. They kept, the, the, I mean, the vigilant for each other. So they get some gains at that time. Of course, the, the whole time, I mean, the full, uh, it's not the, the, it's real individual freedom, but some, uh, to some extent, uh, some the individual freedom of ec economic activities were started in 1979, or the, the, the end of the 1978. So that's uh, the part of the, the facts. Um, uh, my name is Zach West. I work with uh, Senator Cruz. Um, I was curious. And this is probably hard to summarize in a short span, but what role did uh, religion play throughout this period, especially the one that you've discussed, whether it be traditional Chinese beliefs or the atheism of, of uh, the Communist Party? What, uh, that's like I said, that's a tough question to summarize, but I'm curious for a, 
idea of what was going on in religious uh, circles or influence? Well, of course, the attack on religion, organized or otherwise, whether these are churches or Taoist temples or um, you know, other venues, or whether these are local gods, that assault starts right away after 1949. In fact, by 1956, there is no longer any organization outside of the organization of the party itself. So there is a state-sponsored church, a state-sponsored religion, but in effect, whether these are monks or clergy uh, or, or, or others, they are all state employees. Um, so the attack on religion is not unique to the Cultural Revolution, but it's carried much further in the sense that even state-sponsored churches are now being vandalized by Red Guards, temples torn down, any, any trace of anything smacking of a feudal, religious, bourgeois, capitalist past, you name it, comes under attack. But the extraordinary thing is that it probably results in reinforcing it. It goes underground. I mentioned underground factories, but the term underground is very convenient. There's underground reading. The great paradox of the Cultural Revolution is that books are burnt, but many of these books get rescued and then start circulating under the radar. So to some extent, some people can read more during the Cultural Revolution than they could before. And it's the same with religion. You might arrest the priest. You might arrest you know, the, the, the Buddhist man in charge in a village. But then ordinary people maintain their faith. They take it inside their homes. They keep it secret. It becomes an underground religion. So when we talk about the religious revival under Deng Xiaoping, again, we, we shouldn't applaud Deng Xiaoping for it. We should applaud the efforts of ordinary people who have been able to maintain these faiths and these very different religions for so long, despite the Cultural Revolution. We have five minutes left, so very quick question up here. And I'll, I'll try to get as many of you as possible. Make it quick, please. Can the Communist Party ever gain legitimacy, or is the weight of the past and its bloodletting so vast and so great as to make legitimacy, no effort toward legitimacy possible? It, it's, its ideology is in tatters by 1976. And the constant suppression of the political aspirations of ordinary people does not really help. It will never regain its credibility. Lady in the middle. Yes, ma'am, you. I was in China in January and February 1968 for 25 days. It was an international students group from Australia and New Zealand. There was a, uh, it's very well known, uh, there was a book written and, and series of articles. What I don't hear in this dialogue is the turmoil of the situation, uh, the, the general fear uh, that occurred. Um, the question I want to ask is about nationalism now, but we're dying out. I'm the youngest who was on that trip, 
and not once in the times since I have been regularly going to China since 1968 has anyone dialogued me with me uh, in a meaningful way. It's just a look of horror crosses people's face and we move on to another discussion. It was a remarkable time to be in China. Um, there are many stories coming out of it, but uh, it's a very, we were the only international group during there. We met the NLF. Um, okay. We can, it's a questions. very unusual time and it's a pity because it'll be gone. Thank you. Uh, well, the summer, it was the summer of 68? Ah, well, that would be before the end of the so-called Red Years. It would have been a, a lot of repression, uh, already a very preponderant role given to the army. And in parts of the country, in particular Guangxi, quite vicious uh, fighting with, uh, with military weapons. Um, this would have been a point where many of those who took the chairman at his word in 1966 would already have been quite disillusioned. Um, now, the point really is, I believe, uh, why is it that so few people uh, you met or others are really willing to go beyond a look of horror? Um, I don't think it's specific to the People's Republic, uh, but one thing that is specific is that Mao's portrait is still up there and the same party is still in charge, and nobody has ever been encouraged to speak about any episode related to the past, uh, under the Communist Party of China. So it's easier if you're in Cambodia to talk about Pol Pot than it would be to talk about Mao in the People's Republic of China. Uh, that's something we, we, we must observe. Um, now, the other point really is that even when there is uh, the scope, the freedom to reminisce, confront, speak about horrors in the past, it takes time. Uh, anthropologists have observed that people were subjected to great trauma, frequently bottle up and do not really speak to their own children. They tend to skip a generation. There's a sense of, of, of shame. There's a sense of, of wrongdoing. So they, skip, they tend to skip a generation and speak to their grandchildren. Um, if you look at Eastern Europe, I'm, I'm no specialist, but I do remember the collapse of the Soviet Union taking place somewhere in 1991. Yet it took a good 20 years uh, for a truly public debate to appear in some of those countries in Eastern Europe that confronts um, the communist past. And the same could be said about, of course, Spain, where there was an implicit pact after the death of Franco that none of these skeletons would be dragged out of the closet. So there are all sorts of very complicated reasons why it is that some people are less willing to speak than others. But that is not to say that people don't remember. Um, I've been told this uh, when I published my first book on the famine that took place in 58 to 62, that few people actually remembered, but all it takes really is to walk into a village and mention 1958 greatly forward and you will get stories People in the countryside remember very well what happened. They're very good memories. They're very keen to speak, but they've never been encouraged to do so. Okay. <clears throat> so the bad news is we are out of time. The good news is that uh, Frank is going to stay behind and answer some of your questions. 
Uh, and of course, lunch is served upstairs. And I encourage all of you to please buy one of uh, a copy of his book. It is truly magnificent. And I thank you all for coming, especially to you, Frank. Thanks. Thank you.